You're listening to audio from Church of the Incarnation. To donate to our ministry or find out more, please visit incarnationcfl.com. Please be seated. Well, we are right in the middle of a fall teaching series on the book of Hebrews. Love this book. So we're going to continue in it. If you've got your Bibles or your bulletins, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to get a beautiful picture of Jesus. And the picture of Jesus that we're going to see this morning is Jesus who is our high priest and perfect sacrifice. Well, just want you to think about that. Don't just let those words just wash over you in a way that doesn't mean anything. Think about, think about the imagery of a priest, somebody who goes and does something for you that you can't do for yourself. And think about the imagery of a priest offering sacrifices because what we're going to see of Jesus is that he offers the sacrifice of himself. One who say it again, who goes for you and does for you what you can't do for yourself. And I just, I just want to say this right from the outset. Jesus is so much more than a good example. I mean, Jesus is a great example, right? He's a great example. I mean, he, uh, Philippians 2 tells us to follow the example of Jesus' humility. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who regarded equality with God not as something to be exploited, but who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. I mean, Paul is saying in Philippians 2, like, Jesus is a great example of humility. Why don't you guys try that on? But what I want to say to you today, based on what we're going to see in Hebrews, is that Jesus is so much more than a good example. He, he's a perfect sacrifice. And, and Following Jesus is not primarily about following his good example. Christianity is not about becoming more like Jesus, primarily. It's not. It is primarily about accepting with thankfulness what he did that you can't do. It's, it's, about, it's about accepting on your behalf a perfect sacrifice that makes sinners right with God. And that's something you cannot do. You are supposed to be thankful for that. You can't replicate it. So please, I just want to say at the outset, and this, this could be just healing and freeing words for somebody, that if you've got this version of Christianity where you've got to just replicate the loving action of Jesus, right? We even say in our church, let's follow Jesus on the way of love. If that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, you're missing it. You cannot follow Jesus into the essence of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to, with the empty hands of faith, realize that Jesus, as high priest and perfect sacrifice, has atoned for you mediated for you your connection to God. He's given that to you free of charge through his own blood. And, and Christianity is just supposed to be this, this work of gratitude for a God who does for you what you can't do. That's the essence of Christianity. And what we're going to see this morning in Hebrews 9 is that that is, in fact, the principle that is at the very core of even the Old Testament. All right, so we're going to get nerdy for a minute. So for everybody at home, this is where you get up and go make breakfast or something. But you guys are stuck, all right? <laughs> yeah, you're stuck. We're going to drive into the Old Testament. And what you're going to see, and this is so beautiful, I just love this, that God, God's heart and character has not changed from Old Testament to New. That even the Old Testament, and I would say especially the Old Testament law, 
The law was a huge show and tell from God to get you to understand that you can't earn God's forgiveness by rule keeping and being good. That, that even the Old Testament law was just this major show and tell for God to just tell this to all of humanity, that there's got to be somebody who does something for you and as you that makes you right before God, or you got no hope. You'll never do it. You can't and you won't, and that's not the point. All ready for that? All right, let's get nerdy. Look at your Bibles. you got Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read the first verse here. It's in your bulletin. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. just want to highlight one word. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly sanctuary. Okay, here's what the author of Hebrews is going to do. He's taking us back into the first covenant, and that's the law. When you see that word first covenant, he's talking about the law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai. And what he's going to tell us over the whole chapter 9 of Hebrews is that all of this was a big setup to understand the grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. It was all just a big picture of the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, but if you're going to understand that first, you have to understand this first covenant. Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to break down for you, in 45 minutes or less, the essence of the first covenant in the Old Testament. The law. So you hear people say this all the time, like, there are, there are laws in the Old Testament, right? 600 and some commandments and laws. But most of us don't know where they are and don't know much about them, okay? So in just a few minutes, here's how I want you to understand the law in the Old Testament. There were three types of law in your Old Testament, okay? The first type of law is the principal law. Now, the word we have for that is the Ten Commandments. So, if you go to Exodus chapter 20, and this is where this starts, you go to Exodus chapter 20, it's the first statement of law that God gives Israel at Mount Sinai, right? Carl, Charlton Heston, he's got the two tablets, he's coming down, right? Everybody following me, okay? What's on the two tablets? The Ten Commandments, the principal laws that outline the big picture principles that God wants humanity to follow. The first four are about loving God. Okay? This is why the two readings we just read from Jesus, from the Gospel, and from the New Testament say, what are the greatest commandments? Right? What does Jesus say? Love God with all your heart. He's summarizing the first four principal laws. No other gods but me. Don't make an idol. Right? Keep the Sabbath. Okay? The, love God with all your heart. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's a way to summarize the next six principles, which are all about how you treat each other. So Exodus chapter 20, first section of Old Testament law. It's called principal law, the Ten Commandments. Well, if you know the book of Exodus, you know that it goes all the way to chapter 40, and the whole book from chapter 20 to chapter 40 is law. You've got 20 chapters of law in the book of Exodus. Well, what happens next? In, in chapter 21 through 24, y'all are loving this, aren't you? I know. You're eating this up at 9 a.m. Well, I can tell. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> This is one of those moments where inside of my head I'm like, what am I doing? Please stop. <laughs> We're too late now. Let's do this. All right. Chapter 21 through 24 is called Civil, Criminal, and Moral Law. All right. Don't miss this. Civil, Criminal, and Moral Law. Here's why they exist. Back up to chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. You know what number eight is? You shall not steal. God know you're going to steal? Absolutely, he does. Okay. <laughs> And so, in chapter 21 through 24, he gives criminal and moral and civil regulations for what happens when people break the Ten Commandment principles. Chapter 22, 
says this, start, chapter 22 of Exodus says this, when someone steals. Well, wait a second. God just said in chapter 20, don't steal. Why is he going to give us a bunch of rules for what to do when you steal? All right, so if you steal, you go read Exodus 22, you steal somebody's calf, and you go and chop it up and sell it, you get caught, you got to give them back five calves. So God's creating some order for a society, listen, that he knows is going to totally break his law. Okay, don't miss that. All you legalists here, there, and everywhere who, who think that God is asking you to keep the 650 rule, rules to show him that you're worthy of his love. Listen, the law itself assumes that you ain't going to do it. God knows you're going to break these principles. Now, I'm not excusing sin one bit. I'm just telling you that the whole reason civil, criminal, and moral laws are there is because God knows, oh my goodness, I got a bunch of idiots down there who ain't going to listen. I know they're going to steal. So let's, let's, let's create some regulations for when that happens. So you got principle law, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments, right? You following? I love this. Don't miss this. It'll help you love Jesus, I promise. And then you have civil criminal moral law, Exodus 21 through 24. You know what the rest of the book of Exodus is? The biggest section of law that God gives Israel at Mount Sinai? You know what it is? It's called the ritual law, Exodus 25 through 40. And it's the description of the temple and tabernacle. And you're like, oh, I so what, Tom? Well, as we're just about to see in Hebrews chapter 9, what is the system of the tabernacle and temple for? Here's what it's for. It is for teaching Israel that here's a holy God and here's a sinful people and there has to be a regular and daily mediator between you and this God or else there's no hope. There has to be a priest, a high priest, who goes into God's very presence and does for you what you couldn't do and makes your sinfulness and breaking of this law right before this holy God. And if that doesn't happen... Every day on your behalf, you're done. The whole ritual law, 25 through 40, was a massive illustration of the grace of God. He says, I know who you are. And I know what you've done. And I want you to be sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you and I are right in perfect fellowship with one another. And that's got nothing to do with you, you Ten Commandments sinner. It has everything to do with what's accomplished on your behalf. That's the law. The law itself is a vehicle for God to describe His grace and love for you in an unearned way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to drive into. So let's, let's look at it. If you go to chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews, I'm just going to read verse 5 here. God's taking us on a tour of this temple which is described in the ritual law, Exodus 25 through 40. And he goes all the way into the Old Testament holy of holies, the place inside the temple where God's presence dwelt. And I just don't want you to miss this. There's a lot we could say about it. But look at chapter 9, verse 5. Here's where God lives, so to speak. In the temple, in the holy of holies, above it were the cherubim, two angels, two angels with their wings stretching out over the Ark of the Covenant. And the glory of the cherubim, look, this is where God's presence lives. The glory of the cherubim overshadow the mercy seat. Okay, this is where God sat. The throne of God for all of Old Testament period, for the whole Old Testament era, was called the mercy seat. 
Is that the way you think about God in the Old Testament? That for all of Old Testament history, he's sitting on a seat of mercy, just lavishing unearned favor and grace towards people who don't deceive it, deserve it, because that's what the whole Old Testament system was about. And the way he does this, the way he accomplishes it, okay, don't miss this, is through the mediating work of the priests who go in to God's very presence as you and for you and do what you can't do. And I just want, to see, want you to see that just for a minute. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Such preparations having been made. In other words, the temple having been built in this way. And interestingly enough, you go back and read Exodus chapter 20 through 40. There's a repeated phrase in the book of Exodus. Okay? God says to Moses, make sure that you build everything exactly according to the pattern I showed you on the mountain. You think, why is God so like uptight about Moses building this tabernacle exactly the way God showed him? Because he wants it to be the exact picture of his grace and love towards you. And heaven forbid, Moses get creative and right in front of the Holy Holies build a 90-foot golden statue of himself. Right? I know God didn't tell us to do this, but I think I'm pretty special. Let me put a picture of myself in this building. No, God says, you build it the way I want you to build it. Because it is a picture of my grace and love for you. So this system having been built, look what happens. Chapter 9, verse 6. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. Verse 7. But only the high priest goes into the second tent. And he does this once a year, not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. Okay, here's what the author of Hebrews is describing here. The principal day of worship in all of Old Testament history. The day of atonement. Don't miss this. So if you go back and you read the book of Leviticus, you're like, well, what's the book of Leviticus about? You just told me about Exodus, but what's the book of Leviticus about? I've heard there's a lot of laws in there. The book of Leviticus tells you how to use the temple that was set up in Exodus. Right? How will the priests use this temple that God sets up in Exodus? If you go back and read the book of Leviticus, the chapter that's right in the middle of the book, right in the very middle of the content, okay, in a sort of a chiastic structure that points to it in the middle, is Leviticus chapter 16. And it describes the principal day of worship in the temple system in the Old Testament. And here's what it was. It was called the Day of Atonement. And here's what happens. One person, the high priest, goes into the Holy of Holies, the only person who can ever go in there, and it goes once a year, and he takes the blood of an innocent goat, and he goes right up to the mercy seat, the hilasterion, and he sheds the blood of an innocent animal. And, and he does this, don't miss this, if you read Exodus 6, Leviticus 16, he does this as the entire nation of Israel stands around the temple and watches. And Leviticus 16 is very clear. This day is a Sabbath of complete rest. You are to do no work. In other words, God makes it clear. You're not participating in this day where your sins are forgiven. This one day where the high priest goes in and sheds blood to forgive your sins in front of the mercy seat of God, you do nothing but stand around and watch. It is a Sabbath of complete rest. And the only times in the Old Testament where that word complete rest is used. Like, for real, do nothing. You don't participate in this. And after the high priest does that, he comes out in front of the temple in the sight of all the people. This is pretty cool too. And he takes another goat. This is all in Leviticus 16. 
to demonstrate the first goat that was killed inside the building where they couldn't see it, he takes another goat and he puts his hand on that goat and he pronounces out loud, real loud, where everyone can hear, the sins of the whole nation of Israel for the entire year. Lust, greed, idolatry, hatred, murder. Can you imagine? Anger, bitterness, envy, all of it. He pronounces it onto that goat. And then in the sight of all the people, he banishes that goat into the wilderness to die for those sins. Which is where we get the term scapegoat. That's where it comes from. It comes from Leviticus 16. This person's a scapegoat. Why? Because they've taken on your sin, all of it, and God in His mercy has banished that animal from the camp, killed it outside the camp. Does that remind you something about Jesus? Who dies outside the city, on this hill, this lonely place? I mean, that's why the author of Psalm 103 can say this. Listen to this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. This is Old Testament. You know, we read the Psalms and we don't realize, oh my goodness, this is Old Testament God we're talking about here. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Listen to this, verse 10, Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our sins. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. That is a description of the ministry of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And, and what the author of Hebrews tells us is that that whole deal was just set up to help you understand who Jesus is and what he did. He's so much more than a great example. He does for you what you can't do for yourself. And he's the fulfillment of this whole temple system, which was just a sketch of the reality of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let me finish with Hebrews 9. Listen to this, verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest, he entered through the greater and perfect tent, the one not made with hands, not of this creation, but he entered once and for all into the holy place. So he's going directly into heaven. And he enters not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood thus obtaining for us eternal redemption. Boy, that's a steadfast anchor, an enduring hope. I just want to leave you with the words of Edward Mote. He was an English cabinet maker who in his 50s decided he was going to be a preacher. It's never too late. And he wrote these words, you've heard them. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Would you like to connect with our church? Join us online or in person every week at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit IncarnationCFL.com to learn more. Have a great week.